Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is David Feingold, the president of Chatham University and your host for the Future of Higher Education podcast on the New Books Network. I'm joined today by Dan Greenstein, who is the chancellor of the Pennsylvania State System for Higher Education. Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Could, could we start out? Could you share a little bit about your own educational background? Where did you grow up? Where did you go to school and college? Sure. I was uh, born and raised in Rochester, New York, just there off of uh, Lake Ontario. And, um, uh, you know, went to school as a product of East High School, uh, which was a great school in a variety of ways. Um, Big uh, inner city school. So kind of conditioned me early on to uh, issues of equity and social justice. Although, of course, we didn't refer to them in those days in that way. Um, And uh, left Rochester in... uh, uh, 78, I guess, to go to college, University of Pennsylvania, uh, where I encountered the very strong uh, uh, new left social history um, in, the, in the U.S. history department. Uh, so sort of put some philosophical underpinnings, some theoretical underpinnings, analytical underpinnings under some of the experiences I'd had as a kid in school. Um, so uh, and completed my degree at Penn and then went on to uh, do graduate study in the, in the United Kingdom, where Turns out you end up getting your first job in the country where you got your last degree. So um, I came back 20 years later. I guess I was there for a long time, uh, having worked, uh, having studied, and then worked in uh, in the UK for 20 odd years. So, can, yeah. can I ask you about that? Because as you may know, my I, I did the same. I did my doctorate at Oxford and met my wife there, was over in England for seven years. So I was curious for you, was it a conscious decision to choose a, a, a UK doctoral degree over a US and and then to per- pursue the path there? Obviously easier if you're coming from that system. Sure. Um, so I uh, applied for a scholarship when I was at Penn my last year. It was uh, the Turon Scholarship, which is um, enabled Penn students to go study anywhere in, in Britain and British students from anywhere in Britain to come study at Penn. And uh, so I was uh, fortunate enough to, uh, to win the scholarship, to win one of the scholarships that year. And um, <clears throat> so I followed the scholarship and, uh, and that's really what made the decision to, um, to, to go to Britain. And then, you know, I just you know, built my academic network, I guess, there and um, uh, ended up uh, taking my first, uh, my first academic job was at the Glasgow University, um, where it turns out I was hired. It's all very British. I was hired by uh, the then professor of the department, uh, Professor Robbins, who had been a close colleague of my then, my previous sort of um, uh, the guy who was doing a postdoc for uh, Dr. Brian Harrison. So who knew all this stuff was happening in the background? I thought I was just interviewing for a job. But uh, anyway, so I spent uh, a happy several, seven years in Glasgow. And, and you managed to master the local accent, which is one of the stronger ones in the U- United Kingdom? 
Nope. I could, I could, I could listen to it as my, uh, in fact, I remember my very first seminar, I had a, a very rude awakening because I couldn't understand anybody. Right? And, and what actually one of, one of my best students that year was a woman from uh, Orkney or Shetland. I forget one of the way out our outer Island. I think it was Shetland where you're actually speaking a, a, a language, which is a mix of English, Scots, and probably something approximate, approximating Viking. Uh, it was unbelievable. And, and boy, was she smart, but man, you had to work hard to figure out what was going on. So, so what was it that eventually brought you back to the U.S.? So uh, I went from uh, uh, I did seven years at Glasgow as a historian. Um, I took a role doing internet services. This was in the 90s, right? So the internet is a new thing. Hey. Um, and we were all trying to figure out how to use it in, you know, for the good of higher education. Um, so ended up uh, running a couple of national, they were, uh, the United Kingdom was running national academic data services. So I ran a couple of them. Um, and then, you know, sort of moved me into the world of digital libraries, digital archiving, you know, of, of scholarly material. And, um, and I was uh, at a conference in the U.S. and I was sitting next to a guy who I'd known for a long time. And, uh, I, and, and, uh, I can't remember what was, how it came up, but he said, you know, I'm moving on from this role I have. Do you want to, would you be interested? And so I followed that path and, and ended up running a small not-for-profit, a sort of a membership organization of, uh, then, uh, digital libraries, uh, in, in the U S. Um, and one of whose members turned out was university of California, which several years later came and got me out of there and said, come, come run our digital library. So great. Um, so yeah, one thing leads to another and, uh, you just kind of move on as you know. And, and what, what from, from the UC system, which is obviously, you know, a hugely influential one, uh, within the U S higher ed system, what was it that led you to join the Gates foundation? So, uh, so when I was at university of California, uh, we ended up, I was, I was in, uh, run, ran the uh, California digital library, which turns out was one of the largest digital libraries in the world. Um, and it was a consortium of the 10 universities of the University of California system working together, you know, sort of a shared service. And it was a powerful one. Uh, and it was uh, incredible in terms of, you know, the kind of scholarly information that it enabled students and, and faculty, oops, just dropped my glasses, to, um, to, to, to access. Uh, and it was really, a, um, it was all the best of shared services that, that you could imagine for a system as powerful and as, uh, as University of California. And so halfway, about four years into my tenure at the digital library, the provost said, you know, come to work with me as vice provost. And I want you to do for other things what you did for the California digital library. And so, you know, we, there was a lot of things going on. You know, how do you leverage the systemness, the, 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 the extent of our distributed resources? He had this phrase, the power and promise of 10. Um, he had another phrase, which was a custom no, uh, common where you can, custom where it counts. So, you know, kind of the shared service mantra. And so, you know, we did a whole bunch of cool stuff um, and there was a bunch going on. And so we tried to surround a lot of the shared service opportunities, you know, put them on a sustainable footing and to grow them best we could. So there was the University of California Press. We had uh, probably the largest education abroad program in the country, probably still is to this day, which was run as a shared service from one of our universities, uh, Santa Barbara. We had internship programs in D.C. and in um, Sacramento. And then, um, you know, so we sort of grew and put all those on sustainable kind of funding models. 
um, and then we introduced University uh, UC Online, which was less successful, uh, but than those other things. And I probably missed a couple. Uh, but anyway, it was through the UC Online, uh, 2008-9, I guess, and that we were really uh, thinking about how to leverage the incredible academic talent and resources of the University of California in a downturn. You know, remember the the Great Recession where something like 400,000 Californians were going to be without a place in higher education, mostly at community colleges and the California state system. And, and of course, it, and most of the students who were out of a place because of the funding cuts were largely black and brown. And so we started uh, investing seriously in what could we do? Could we do anything in an online way to begin to sort of make up for those lost opportunities? And uh, so Explored That became a partner of the Gates Foundation, a grantee, and then, you know, and then I guess through that relationship, the Gates Foundation came and said, hey, could you run our post-secondary program? So uh, that's how I got to, that is how I got to, um, uh, to, to, to Seattle in, I guess, 2012. And what was it like going from, you know, I think all of us in higher ed have got used to living in resource-constrained environments. What, what was it like moving into one where you're, now sort of a, a philanthropist and you're giving out a lot of money. Yeah. So it was sort of, it was head spinning <laughs> for a bit, but you know, you got used to it. And, uh, but the, the other thing, which is also true is that, you know, the Gateses are incredible, are incredible people. Uh, their aspiration after impact to, to do good is really unparalleled. And, um, and I, I can't remember the exact numbers in my time. I think we averaged probably something like hundred, 120 million a year spent on post-secondary education, but the ambition was, you know, to, to help universities and colleges, um, really improve their outcomes for, uh, historically underserved students from under-resourced communities, low-income students, students of color. So if you think about that, you know, that's a, and, and it wasn't just to sort of help individuals, right? Although there was this massive, um, wonderful uh, scholarship program uh, that, that was run by uh, UNCF at the time um, that focused on, you know, scholarships for individuals from, from, from underrepresented communities. But the, 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 the objective of the strategy was to achieve, you know, to scale performance improvement across the entire sector so as to significantly improve outcomes at massive scale. And, you know, so think about that for a minute. $120 million is not a lot. So, um, however much it is. And um, just to put is, it in context, how, how did that compare with the UC budget when, when, oh, when you I left? mean, it was fractional. I mean, UC budget right. when I left there was probably $23, 25000000000 billion a year. Um, so it was, uh, you know, fractional uh, in that regard. Um, but if you think about it, you know, you're, you're trying, so it was, it was strat strategic philanthropy, which is, you know, what are the kinds of investments that you make that in effect have a ripple effect in terms of the changes they uh, help promulgate across, across, the, across the industry. So that was fascinating work. Uh, enjoyed it immensely. And so obviously you had that sort of system ambition for higher ed. What was it that led you to make the leap to try that yourself at the PASHI system in 2018? So uh, it was actually a comment of a colleague of mine uh, who, when I was uh, sort of thinking about, you know, next steps, uh, looking at a whole bunch of opportunities uh, back in 2018, I guess. And uh, he said to me, you know, 
what would happen if you didn't, you know, you spent all this time <clears throat> thinking about how to sort of um, drive system change in a way that helps uh, sort of move, drive an equity agenda? What would it be like if you never actually tried? <laughs> so uh, I started, you know, so it, amongst the things I was looking at at that stage in 2018, when I was trying to think, figure what I really wanted to do next was take a year off. I mean, honestly, I've never done that. And um, anyway, I did start to look for uh, higher education institutions that serve the population that care about, obviously. Um, and that also knew that they, they, they really needed that they needed and wanted to change. I, I, I didn't want to. Um, I didn't want to spend time at, a, in, at an institution, however good it was or whatever, and making the case for transformation. I just, it, for me, it's like I mean, it's really important work, but I, for me, it felt like it's watching paint dry, and it was not my forte. So um, you know, and so the Pennsylvania State System came along. And then I was looking at universities, you know, individual institutions, I was looking at systems. The systems, I think, were more appealing to me because of my experience with systems and because my interest in scale. Um, And uh, so the Pennsylvania State System came along. uh, And my only regret is that it came along, you know, nine months too soon, you know, not getting my... To take that break. Correct. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think I stepped away from the Gates Foundation in, in... Probably, and I forget, it was probably end of June, and I started here the 1st of September. So I had a couple months, which was great, or a month, or whatever it was, but not a lot. And um, uh, But it was great. And, uh, and I was obviously, so now I'm here, happy to be here. And so for the listeners not familiar with the PASHI system, can you describe where it stood when you joined and sure. how were, how aware of you? You said you wanted a system that was ready for change. How aware were you of the challenges you were taking on when, when, when you took the job? I went in eyes pretty wide open. You know, the Pennsylvania State System at that stage was 14 universities. Um, they were uh, regional comp- comprehensives, I guess I would call them. Most of them... Uh, it was teaching to the master's degree, you know, all of virtually all of them uh, drawing the majority of their students from the five surrounding counties. So very local stewards of place. I think they're called uh, one was a Indiana University, of Pennsylvania is a research university. Now two are um, uh, and they had experienced significant enrollment decline. Their high water mark was uh, probably one hundred and twenty thousand in about twenty ten. Uh, when I joined in 2018, uh, they were probably down already to 90-ish thousand, uh, down further now, obviously. And um, uh, and of course, you know, the state of Pennsylvania is 48th in the nation at that stage in terms of its investment in public higher education. And so all of the challenges that we're aware of from across the country are acutely present in Pennsylvania. You know, state divestment coupled with demographic changes have resulted in, you know, tuition increases, which drive enrollments down even further, uh, which make it very difficult for the low and middle income students that are served by public institutions of this type. I mean, you know, we are the gritty underbelly of U.S. higher education. We, we serve the 99%, not the one. Um, and, uh, you know, our job is to produce Main Street professionals and not Wall Street. And, you know, I'm sure some of our students go to Wall Street, but, um, you know, that's not who we are. So, um, and it's hard to imagine the country kind of doing very well without us. But um, but nonetheless, I mean, we were really experiencing significant uh, challenges as a result of those combination of, 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 uh, of, of influences. So I like to think that, you know, stuff that we know about and are familiar with across the country was just acutely represented here and 
Pennsylvania state system. And it was interesting because I think they, everyone knew it. I mean, it was fascinating to me. The, the thing that attracted me was that the board's um, chancellor's role description basically said, hey, we're in trouble and we need help. And um, which is very unusual, as you know, for a board to, to, you know, to basically in a very public way say we need help. And uh, they, they were aware of that. And, and they'd done a lot of good work trying to prepare the way for the next chancellor and for, you know, what we refer to as a system redesign, a, a fundamental transformational undertaking, ultimately designed to improve our performance, to allow us to do more of what we were so good at, you know, acting as an engine of social mobility and economic development, but in the first instance, to get our financial house in order, um, because uh, s financial stability was absolutely critical and we did not have that. And um, so, so, uh, so I think I knew, you know, generally speaking, you know, you never really know how uh, the, the detail of any particular challenge. Um, so obviously it didn't take very long after I got here to, 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 to learn it in much greater detail and what the specific dimensions were. But I, I don't think on the whole, there was any real surprises, perfectly honest. And obviously you've laid out very clearly what the imperative for change was. And it sounded like the board of the system got that, but there had been a couple at least of prior efforts to reform the system that hadn't worked because of course it is the state system, right? So it's got lots of stakeholders, constituents. What, what was it that made the case that this time you were able to, to truly move it forward and get the support and buy-in you needed from the, the, the state officials and, and all of the, the campuses to the model? So I don't think any of that was guaranteed on the day one. I mean, it was interesting when I came out for interview, you know, in the usual way you meet with lots of people from all constituencies um, and everybody, you know, whether it was presidents or union leadership or faculty roundtable or um, uh, councils of trustees, our universities, they were 14 of them when I got here, they have uh, in their own councils of trustees, <clears throat> which act in advisory capacity or politically appointed um, Students, I think I spoke to board members, everybody, you know, there was not really any necessarily any agreement about how to change, but there was absolutely no question in anybody's mind that it was imperative that we, you know, address ourselves to our many, many challenges. So that was in itself a good thing. And, and I remember speaking to the governor at some point, uh, Governor Wolf, um, who was a great supporter of higher education and of the Pennsylvania state system, it turns out. <clears throat> um, you know, so, you know, he, he doesn't represent, obviously, elected rep, uh, elected officials across the state, but it's important to have the governor who is very, you know, supportive of the transformational director and continued to be over the um, years that I worked with him. Um, so you had a sense that at least people understood there was a problem. And even if they didn't align around, you know, in terms of the specifics and getting, you know, oh, buy-in is a tough word. I, I don't see this. Uh, um so I think if uh, transformation is really, is, is a, it's a campaign. And um, I think, you know, consensus is too high a bar. Uh, Buy-in is important, but not from everybody. Because, you, you know, I mean, the question is, you know, how urgent, you know, here we're, and I don't think it's too audacious to say we were, we are fighting for the soul of public higher education in the state of Pennsylvania. Um, and it's worth fighting for. Uh, 
but the to save its soul, as it were, it's going to require significant, has required already significant structural, behavioral, and other changes. And people are just not going to hold hands and go singing Kumbaya as they make them. So, I mean, from a, and I'm a pragmatist, you know, um, so, so obviously, you know, cultivating support and driving change, buying is important, but again, I, it sounds awful. I think about it like a political campaign. You, you need, you don't need a hundred percent of the vote. You need 50% plus one. Now, I'm not sure that math works in change agency and transformation, but you, you need to bring the people you need to bring to do your best to neutralize the ones who are going to cause a lot of problems. But, you know, we were talking years, not decades, of further existence. The, ur- the urgency here is and was and probably still is pretty great. So uh, it just requires a different way of thinking, in my view. Mm-hmm. And and you looked at a variety of scenarios for the system change. You ultimately chose one that combined three of the universities on the eastern side of the state into a single institution and three on the west. Um, can, can you describe a little how you came to that eventual model and, and the scenarios you looked at? So... Just to be clear, um, the transformation, the system redesign, is is about is about um, strengthening public universities as engines of social mobility and economic development. So you can come at this from an equity or a workforce development lens. Start with workforce, right? Sixty percent of today's jobs in Pennsylvania require somebody in them with some higher education. Fifty-one percent of adults have it. That's a gap. It's a big gap there are not enough traditional students, high school graduates who look more like me to fill that gap, who have, sorry, there are not enough traditional students who look like me, who are relatively wealthy to fill that. It's a basic math problem. So you ask yourself, okay, who else do we need to educate to fill the gap? All right. Well, we got to do better with low-income students, students of color. Good. Push that number. Still not enough. How about we got to do better with our own students, students we already enroll but are stopping out. Okay. Push that number. Still not enough. Mm. Got to do better. With, how about adults who have maybe some college no degree? A lot of those. Well, do better. Okay. Push that. Probably still not enough. So, um, so you begin to do the math and you think, oh my goodness, we have to open the aperture on the people coming through. And then you think, oh gosh, higher education is not a water hose. Turn to the next person, they get just as wet as the last, right? It's educating, effectively educating a student like I was, who was, you know, I was like a nerdy, bright kid who wanted to study um, and you know, I, I was great for a college or university because they could only detract value, right? I'm going to, um, but I'm a different student. Gauging with me is completely different than gauging with someone from, you know, uh, a Latina from Philadelphia 
2.5 grade point average first in her family to go to college, which is completely different yet again from an adult who's got a family and a job and I don't want your damn residence hall or your, you know, rec fee, just give me the degree, you know, it's complete. So, so you're talking about in, in order simply to grow the number, you have to diversify the product. Well, and diversifying the part, you can't just go to your faculty, turns out, or the registrar's office or, or the enrollment management folks and say, hey, could you do better? Or could you be culturally competent? Or, hey, I know we're good at recruiting from schools and community colleges, go get adults. I mean, you're talking about fundamental changes in practice, so professional development at scale. So the transformation that we envisaged for the Pennsylvania state system was that transformation. How do we open the aperture so we can continue in service of the state as an engine of economic development and social mobility? Now, you could come out of that same problem set from an equity point of view, and you get to the same place. The only way to meet whether it's equity or workforce development goals is to open the aperture and do better with people who are historically been underserved, which requires internally a lot of change in practice and mindset, et cetera. So that was the goal of system redesign. Financial stabilization was a step along the way, and it was absolutely critical because unless we got the only way to get to where we need to get to was to get greater investment from the state in the power and promise of public higher education. Good. The state was not desperately highly trusting of the Pennsylvania state system because of years of what was perceived as mismanagement, cost overruns, our enrollments had declined by a lot, but our headcount hadn't, you know, all sorts of stuff. And we're heaping costs on students without addressing our own issues. So, so in order to win the trust of the legislature, we started with basic sustainable operations. We are going to stop raising tuition. We froze tuition four years in a row. We have frozen tuition four years in a row. We increased financial aid from 80 to $110 million every. We cut ourselves and to pay for that, we adjusted our expenditures to align with our new enrollment realities. We took $300 million out of basic operations in three years. I promised 250 and five, we got to 303. Not really super easy to do in higher education, as you know, uh, and certainly not easy to do in a way that's respectful of your employees. Most of our costs are personnel costs, but we you know, aggressively leveraged um, retirement incentives and whatnot to, to really reduce our headcount, managed our programs aggressively. You know, we just had to stop. We were operating over two broader waterfronts. So one of the uh, parts of that financial stabilization was uh, requiring our universities to do like every American family and spend no more than they earn. Imagine that. Um, and held their and held them accountable for for doing that. And of course, and 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 you know, provided a bunch of tools and 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 guidelines and whatever uh, to help support movement in that direction. So what happens is when you have, particularly in our rural communities, you know, where the, the enrollment declines have been very considerable, often more than a third, and in some cases near nearing half uh, enrollment loss in a ten year period. What happens is when you begin to manage your, 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 your organization in a way that reflects your enrollment realities, if you're an institution, you're pushing two and 3,000 students, you are substantially curtailing the number of academic programs you offer. And program choice is really important. Students want it, and they should have it. But more or as important is that we're regional universities, right? These are rural parts of Pennsylvania. They rely on our universities for their next generation of teachers and healthcare workers and business leaders and civic leaders. And it turns out you don't just want a single flavor 
or specialty of nurse. You need the full range, right? So program choice is actually also important to the communities that we serve. So we're looking at these universities that are, we're you know, requiring sustainable operations where you can see the path that they're on. They're going to go from 60, 70, 80 programs, which I'll define as like degrees, majors, minors, to 20. Oh, that's not good. That potentially generates a vicious cycle of continued enrollment decline and underservice to the community. The only way to square that circle is to scale up. So integration was not anything. Integration is not system redesign. Integration is not transformation. Integration was part, was a particular means of getting to a broader end, which is opening the aperture on access to and throughput from higher education into meaningful good jobs so that we can continue in service to the state workforce development. To do that sustainably, we had to build a strategy to manage our low enrolled schools. And um, integration was the strategy we chose to manage, uh, to ensure educational opportunity was available across the state, including at our, our low enrolled schools. Great. Thank you for that that very articulate overview. Just wanted to come back. You you mentioned the the scale of costs you were able to take out of the system first to, to, to lay the foundation for the transformation. One of the challenges often with using an early retirement mechanism as a or a retirement incentive mechanism, and you probably saw this while you were in the UC system, is often when that's offered the most employable people take it and then can go elsewhere. How did you manage wanting to align the faculty you were retaining with the high demand programs with you know, the need to, to, to take out such a significant amount of cost? So you can't. <laughs> uh, so I guess I would say don't, don't try. Um, you know, if you want to be strategic in terms of the only way to do that is layoffs. Um, what we did, and I, you know, I, I, I say that casually, but I, I don't take it at all casually. It's a, it's a horrible thing to have to do, and we've had to do that too. Um, the 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 downside of, uh, as you've mentioned, the downside of the um, incentive based retirement incentive based approach is that you end up with holes all over your organization. We did we did it across the board, not faculty staff. Yeah, actually, at one point, including senior leadership. So you end up with holes all over the place and you have to replace a lot of them. So we had a couple things going for us that were helpful. So one of them is that we were very clear uh, and uh, transparent at, at university by university. Our, our, our presidents were university leadership boards about these are the programs that are going away. Just, OK, we're going to be clear about that. And so you now have transparency into the direction of the academic program or these are the, you know, things that are going to be scaled back. So you, it's not just on the academic side. So people had visibility into where there was going to be decline. So the first thing, the second thing is that because we're operating across the system, if you do this kind of on a one, university by university basis, a university will, you know, uh, achieve a bunch of uh, vacancies through retirement, and then we'll have to fill the ones it has to fill. Uh, by working across the system, we could end up placing people across the system. So um, as a consequence, we were able to find, I think we only, I think we, I think we reduced our faculty headcount by about 900. Uh, I think I've only had 27 terminations or something like that. So horrible. Every termination is a horrible thing. 
but you know to go down by nine by 900 and only to have terminate 27 a lot of that was because we were able to work together across the system to achieve those kinds of placements and then we could do the same thing on the non you know academic side as well by you know helping universities kind of keep the your most precious asset is your people right to keep the people that you need to keep by helping them find a find a place um uh, disruptive and challenging in a, a, every number of different ways. But, you know, as a consequence, I think we got stronger as a system, figured out how to work together like that. Um, uh, uh, but you still always need to come back. I mean, and this is, you know, this is really more of a detailed implementation conversation. But, you know, when you achieve that level of reduction, you always do have to come back and strategically, eventually you have to take a strategic approach to your organizational capability making sure you've got the right people and the right chairs on the bus. And the the flavor you ended up choosing for integration looks a bit different on the eastern and western side of the state. So um, on the for Commonwealth University, you included one of the institution in it, Bloomsburg that was financially healthier among the three. Whereas on the western side, you have some very healthy institutions, but all three were more struggling. So I was curious in sort of as the logic unfolded for the two and you looked at other models, how, how those two played out. So it's interesting. I'm still too early to say, to yeah. be perfectly honest. I mean, <clears throat> the integrated entities became integrated. They became known as a new university by creditors and financial aid and U.S. Department of Medicine. On July 1st, 2022, they accepted their first cohort of students, let's say September 1st, 2022. So they've only, they've not even been in operation for a year. So it's still early days. Um, but a couple of things. So one of them is when you do have a strong campus of the three bloom in the in Commonwealth, uh, you know, it, it generates a degree of concern at the other two universities about, you know, they're being eaten by a big shark. Um, so, you know, there, there, and, and it is, uh, uh, you know, how do you, how do you help people understand that they're partners when the partnership is very, in some ways unequal, um, in, in very, depending on how you measure in terms of, well, employee base or number of students or, 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 you know, money in the bank, that sort of thing. So I think that is a challenge at Commonwealth that does not exist at Penn West. Now there's an upside and I'll go to Penn West in a second. There's an upside to the to the Commonwealth experience. It's like when you bring three universities together and they turn them into one, every function has to figure out how to be one. So in institutional research, we have three ways of collecting data and we have three different methodologies and we have three different ways of interacting with people. And you can't have that. You need one. And, you know, when you're doing, um, you know, promotion and tenure, although it's managed, the, the process is defined in our collective bargaining agreement with our faculty union, there's lots of different implementation flavors. So you can't have lots of, you gotta have one, you know? Um, and, you know, that's true across so many different areas. It could go on and on. So, you know, at Penn West, where you bring in three very equal partners in pretty much every regard, everything is a negotiation. It takes time. At Commonwealth, sorry, we're just doing it the bloom way. <laughs> it doesn't take as much time. You know, so it may generate some animosity, but at the same time, it's there's a, a huge degree of efficiency. So, and, and I don't, you know, they, I don't know, and there's lots of other differences that materialize from, you know, Commonwealth certainly has a lot more resiliency financially. Uh, Penn West has not, so it can um, 
manage the disappointing enrollments. They can manage, you know, uh, any number of things that can happen and and tug at a university's uh, um, uh, viability, uh, you know, temporarily or or for a long time. Penn West doesn't have that, so I think. Um, so the, the uh, you know, Penn West chose out of the gate. We're going to change our name. We're going to invest in rebranding, and it, and and it be create and creating a new brand. Of course, is complicated. But you know, they kept the underlying na- the na- names of the uh, uh, original campuses. So it was Penn West, um, Edinburgh, Penn West, California, etc. But they emphasized the Penn West bar. Uh, Commonwealth did not, right? So there's an upside, right? The upside is you're probably going to take a hit more in enrollments when you're doing brand complete brand redevelopment, whereas you might sort of prolong that hit over time at, at Commonwealth, which is going at its store. Penn West went all in full bore on technology integration. Let's just rip the bandaid off and get it done. Um, Commonwealth did not. I think that was as much a matter of managing legacy systems as, 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 you know, a strategic decision, but they're very different. And as a consequence, Penn West experienced, you know, all of the pain of technology integration, what of systems at that scale and that criticality, they experience all of that in a compressed way between September and December. Bloom, Commonwealth, Lock Haven, Mansfield, they're uh, they're they're um, spreading it out. Now I don't know that pain's painful, so it may actually be better. I don't know. We'll see. So I think you know there, there's an interesting uh, study to be done. Uh, at some point. Not well, yet. and it's an interesting natural experiment with that yeah, degree exactly. of difference in the models there. Yeah. I, I'm curious, as you looked at this and as challenging as it obviously was to, to bring these about, did you think about either the inclusion of Cheney within it? Because they have obviously had their own struggles, the historically black college and university within the system. and And also, in some other state reforms, like Georgia or, or other states, they've they've looked not just at your equivalents, the, the the regional publics, but they've also looked at the community college system. As you know, one of our challenges here in Pennsylvania is we have a, a not one system, but lots of overlapping systems with the Pitt and Penn State branch campuses, the community colleges, as well as yourselves. Was there ever any thought to thinking about wider consolidation or was it always within the, the PASHI framework? So take both questions in turn. So um, start with Cheney. So these university, the, the integration process was really driven bottom up. I mean, all right, yeah, the chancellor put his finger on the scale, but um, the path towards integration was, it was the only way to sustain opportunity at these schools. Um, but once that path had been established, the, the the plans and the implementation was really left to appropriately the the presidents, the leadership at the local level, because um, they're the with systems not accredited. The, actually, the chancellor doesn't have authority. Uh, chancellor doesn't run anything. Turns out, um, you know, statutorily, the presidents are the CEOs of their universities, et cetera. So, you know, being respectful of our statutory uh, uh, enabling legislation. Um, and, and they're different, and I should have said that earlier, they're different for that reason, because they weren't planned from the center. They were planned from the ground up. And, and those differences reflect different cultures. So interestingly enough, Cheney, and Cheney, Cheney, Cheney was one of the, probably the first in my time here to um, consider 
integration. Uh, Cheney was in a world of hurt when I arrived in 2018. They were in the third, unprecedented third year of a show cause from Middlesex, the accreditors, to why they shouldn't revoke its accreditation. They had a $45 million debt to the system and it borrowed money from the system to pay its bills. And, and another, uh, yes, at that stage, untold uh, debt level could have been another $50 million to the U.S. Department uh, uh, of Education. Um, and Cheney's path out of that, still not complete, was not integration, uh, although there was an interesting conversation at one stage about uh, a third party um, which was fascinating but complicated and probably beyond the means of the U.S. and state. We got the president, Aaron Walton, great president, great guy, got pretty close, but it was uh, the hurdles were, were the, the, the urgency was too great and the, and the hurdles really regulatory legal were too high. Um, but also the path that they're on is really very different. So um, our regional universities are regional. They serve their communities. They need that breadth of programming that we discussed. Cheney is not regional. Cheney is, serves a niche market. It's an HBCU. It's the oldest of the historically black universities. Um, and, you know, draws from all over the place. Uh, so you don't have that, you know, that that's, we had that conversation about the importance of breadth to students, but the importance of breadth to the community doesn't exist for Cheney. So Cheney's, the, the, the path that they're on, which is fascinating, you know, it's basically like we're going to be small, six, 700 students. The way we're going to manage and be small is that we're going to capitalize on a very important asset that we have out, just sitting outside of Philadelphia, which is land and buildings. And we're going to establish partnerships with third parties, both for and not for profit, who are going to utilize our buildings and land. And that's going to generate some rental income. But as and more importantly, they're also going to engage our students in internships. That's cool. So um, and, and sort of contribute genuinely to the student experience. Um, so that's fascinating. So they're well along. And, and, and here's the P&L, the profit and loss statement. We think we can pull this off and actually begin to get to a point where we can supplant the need for public assistance, state funding through these third party partners, these private public partnerships, these third party because they're not all private. Um, so that's the, that, that's a different you know, if you think about it, you really these are all very different ways of achieving financial resiliency. Integration achieves financial resiliency through scale. Cheney is seeking to achieve financial um, resiliency through diversification of its revenue streams and the establishment of a rich network of inter-reliant uh, partners. So both of so they're all interesting. They are all part of that broader system redesign. They are all steps that potentially get us to that, but but they're different. And so um, so no, Cheney was never really you know with the board as you may know did not have the authority to integrate schools. So we had to go out and get that authority in I guess 2019 um, which we did through legislative change. Uh, but Cheney never factored in that conversation. Mm -hmm. um, and honestly, wouldn't I? You know, it's you can't just say you you have to integration is hard from in a system. You have to have something the chancellor and the board can't do. You 
you have to have partners on the ground because that's where all the work is and that's where the students are. And did did you consider in that was was it ever on the table to look at the other sort of institutions serving a similar student population within the state that are also public or publicly assisted? Oh, sorry, you asked about that as yeah. well. So um, that's above my pay grade and above the pay grade of the board. The board can only operate, you know, within its authority. Um, uh, it would not surprise you to learn that I think that needs to be done. Uh, the state of Pennsylvania has any number of structural challenges. Uh, it's um, it, it's uh, it was interesting. The governor Shapiro's budget address. Um, he said out loud, "Our post-secondary education system, such as it is, meaning the whole ecosystem, doesn't work." It was one of two lines that generated applause from both sides of the aisle. Um, and so there's a lot of understanding of that, but, but, you know, the Pashti board is not responsible for all those other things. So the governor has, uh, uh, undertaken a further review, uh, with a view he said in his speech, his budget address of coming back to the next budget year with us, a, a, a blueprint for, um, for higher education. We'll see if that means, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm all in, uh, I know they're, they're obviously, uh, c- consulting with, you know, um, people like me and other leaders in higher education and many, many other folks. So, um, I, and I, I, it absolutely needs doing, um, it will be the fourth kind of that kind of review that I've only been here less than five years. So it is the fourth review. Um, and I keep saying, you know, time's not our friend. Uh, but you know, um, it's a, it's a, it's a political problem as much as anything else, because, you know, I think, um, inertia is a strong force. Um, and it requires, I can tell you from our little microcosm here, the Pennsylvania state system, I think you, there were, uh, um, you asked, I think, you know, why hadn't this been done before something to that effect? I can tell you why it's super hard. I mean, you, you really have to want to get the shit kicked out of you. Um, to, to and I don't mean this in a personal way, but it, this, it's super hard and we didn't really do anything that significant. So, um, and, you know, and of course what happens in a state like Pennsylvania is that the problems are pushed off and pushed off. The can continues to get kicked down the road. The problems get bigger so that the changes required to address them get even more challenging to try to implement. So, you know, I'm, I try to remain optimistic, uh, as one does. Um, but it's going to require a Herculean effort and a political leadership that, is um, rare. I hope we have it. And as you have been the the architect of this, working with all your partners at leading the the different campuses, did you look to other state reform systems? Were there lessons you drew either what to do or not to do from some of the other um, efforts that that were underway, which obviously from your perspective at Gates, you had a, a unique lens on seeing the national as well as once you arrived in Pennsylvania. So we did. Um, uh, we actually, uh, I engaged Shelly Nickel, who was the uh, senior vice chancellor at the system office in Georgia, who really was the architect behind the first wave of integrations down there. Uh, she was sort of the senior advisor to the chancellor. And she was actually helpful in a whole bunch of ways, but uh, including, you know, having lived it once, just existence proof. See, this can be done. Um, 
uh, we looked carefully at um, a variety of so very closely in touch with what was happening in Maine and Vermont and Connecticut. Um, all the things we were in touch with things that, you know, aren't still not public, you know, where people are beginning to consider this. So we did learn a lot and in ways that affected or influenced our approach um, uh, at, at actually at, at every at, at every level from planning sort of design principles to uh, process. Ours is a very public process. George, Georgia system was not the, the, the time integration was talked about openly the design was already in place. We went, you know, we did the sausage making in the public eye. And I mean, because, you know, learning Georgia was right for Georgia, but would not have been right here. Um, uh, you know, some of the implementation decisions that we made were, were um, drawn from others who had, uh, you know, walked through the gate, um, Georgia and a few others uh, said, look, you're going to have an opening day, which is the day you enroll your first cohort of students. A whole bunch of stuff needs to be working on that day. What's that bunch? What's that list? Start there. Those are your priority one activities. Some of these other things, they don't need to be there on opening day. Push them because there's a lot to do. So, you know, there was a lot of uh, process uh, lessons learned. There was a lot of, um, yes, yeah, at every level. And then we missed some stuff, to be perfectly honest. I wish, I, you know, I, I'm never doing this again. But if I had to, I, I would do it somewhat differently. I, I know where I make uh, adjustments in the process. And just to ask you about a few specifics of the reform. So one of the challenges with the, sh the sharp drop from 120,000 to fewer than 90,000 students was you had a lot of empty dorm rooms in the different campuses for capacity. My, my understanding of the, the new model with the sort of the right sizing and the being able to leverage uh, virtual courses, it, it helps with a lot of that with the cost you took out, but it doesn't I don't think particularly solve that issue. So how are you thinking about that physical capacity and, and the use of use of that? So the question is, so what happened here as in many other places is that in 2007, eight, nine, people see the demographic cliff coming and, you know, it, depending on the age of your university or, you know, relations with the state, you know, other things were happening too, like the buildings we had in place were kind of ending the end of their useful life and our capital budgets were shrinking or going away completely. And so, you know, the response is we see the demographic cliff coming. We want to position ourselves to compete effectively within it. We're going to do that on the basis of facilities. Our facilities need a refresh. We don't have the kind of support from the state that we need, so we're going to go into debt to, to do that. Here's what the enrollments need to, to cover the debt service. So, um, so you know, mostly left with a bunch. So, so when your uh, residence hall occupancy shrinks below a certain amount, you can't pay the debt service. Um, and that's forever. Now, it doesn't matter unless you shrunk below that level or if you have shrunk below that level, if you believe you can get back above it. It's where you've shrunk below the threshold level by so much and you're in a region where it is unlikely to be able to generate enough students to fill those beds that you're basically stuck with a stranded asset. And so there, you know, we're pursuing a whole bunch of, where, where that's true, we're pursuing a whole bunch of opportunities, you know, sale of property, uh, re reutilization, 
um, by third parties, uh, conversation with the state about whether there's some other state agency uses or state buildings anyway. Um, uh, you know, are, is, are there ways that we can be creative and, and have debt service relieved or taken over? So um, those are long running discussions. They're very slow moving. Uh, but at the end of the day, I mean, think about it as structural deficit. At some point, you know, we have we the board is responsible for paying all its bills, um, and uh, that's a statutory obligation. So uh, the the you know it's it's and it's interesting too in in, in my in my view for another reason because the the, the reliance the, the the overhead cost of the uh, uh, auxiliary debt um, actually almost forces adherence to a model of higher education, which is declining. You need students, residents, you need students and residents yep. in beds, but the growth opportunities are actually not there. Yep. And asking about those growth opportunities. So um, for online offerings or, or hybrid offerings, it seems to me you're in the strategy you're outlining, you're, you're serving two potentially different groups. One is allowing you to expand the offerings for those, each of the campuses within the integrated system more than they could have with just the faculty on campus. But the other is what you mentioned about widening the funnel in terms of being able to expand online to students who may never come to campus or or would be predominantly virtual. Is, is that true? And are you approaching that through the same set of courses or, or are they different elements? It's a great question. Um, so let me take it this way, uh, because I think it's not just a distinction between online and on ground. I think there are equal distinctions. What are distinctions one could make between for and not for credit? Um, and between, you know, and, and between degree and non-degree seeking students. So I think of it in terms of having, and universities will make the decision about, you know, what mix, but having a diverse product mix, but managing the product mix as, in a way that enables the greatest amount of synergy. So for example, uh, with respect to online versus not online, in a university of a certain size, or below a certain size, and I'm, I won't specify the size, but it's big. It doesn't seem to me to make sense to carve out your online and treat it as a wholly separate PL. I, I just, because you have one faculty and because you have a single program array, et cetera. At a certain size, it probably does. Our schools aren't there. Um, so, you know, I, so, so, and, or I'd say, you know, if you have these distinct kind of offerings, how do you manage them in a way? And I'll give you an example from the credit, non-credit. So a, a faculty member, we have a great program at ESU in the business school, they, a lot of tourism and recreation kind of business related degrees because of the surrounding resort community. Um, great, great partnerships with employers, et cetera. So undergraduate degree seeking students in business and tour in, the, in recreation tourism, uh, they've integrated a lot of micro-credentials into the into the um, programs of study, so students who can uh, on their way to the degree can pick up these micro credentials, which have real value in industry. I mean, they're getting internships and job placement rates at massively high rates on the strength of these credentials, which are developed in partnership with employers. 
good. Um, now you could begin to actually introduce those non-degree students who are still taking those courses just to get the credential. They don't care about the credit. They just want the credential and lodge management or whatever. Also good. You only have one faculty member teaching that course. Even if you have two faculty members teaching the course, you know, you, so how do you actually, you know, utilize the activity in a way that you're filling the seats in the most effective and efficient manner? So I think that there, the, the, the way to manage the academic program or a course scheduling, faculty complement, et cetera, is to be able to understand the full scope of products and where they intersect and where they don't. Yeah, put it that way. That, that, that makes sense. So going back to that more traditional student, one of the other uh, persuasions that you had to do was with the NCAA to keep the teams on the different campuses, even though they were going from separately accredited institutions to a single one. What, was that a challenge as, as they're seeing new models in higher ed? Was, was it, you know, oh, we've done this before, it's no problem or... So I, I think, you know, look, all the, we, we work with all the regulatory agencies, middle states, obviously, NCAA, Department of Education, uh, FSA, you know, uh, our Pennsylvania Department of Ed. People are fantastic. I mean, you know, I think the, the and great partners, I, you know, the key, and I think probably something we learned from Shelley or I learned from Shelley was to sort of invite them in early to the conversation and let them know, you know, what's coming. Um, you know, no one likes a surprise. And, um, and, and, so, and we did, and, and both with middle states and NCAA and others. And it was terrific. They were terrific partners. Um, you know, uh, they were clear about the processes. They had issues. They were clear about what they were. You know, with NCAA, in all fairness, they said, look, you know, this is what we want to avoid. If I'm President X and I have a single university with three campuses, I can think of ways that I could manage my athletics department or division so that, you know, Campus X is unbeatable ever in in whatever division, PSAC in our case. That's not we, we can't have that. You know, we how do you how do you guarantee um, that campus based programs are genuinely uh, distinct from one another and that they're not, you know, uh, collaborating in 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 a way that sort of undermines the kind of the that kind of what we're trying to accomplish in in uh, through sport. It was a really good. It was a really good question, and it really forced us to think really hard about structure and organization, funding, and and how does it work? You know, so while you're thinking about chemistry, and of course chemistry, we're going to bring everything together, the libraries, whatever, or student affairs. Well, that's not going to work in athletics, and it shouldn't, right? So. How is it different? So it was a dialogue. And, um, you know, I thought it was fantastic uh, um, that, that they were. And I think they recognized, look, we're not the only we're mostly Div 2. We're not the only Div school, Div 2 schools are going to go, you know, be in this soup. And, 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 you know, this I mean, NCAA athletics are so important to these schools, especially in rural schools and to their communities. And I mean, for all sorts of reasons, we did a great analysis or supported in our work by Baker Tilly. They, they did a, some really good work with us on basically the economics of our athletics programs. And, you know, we found out probably what we thought we knew, which is, you know, they're not sinking us, that if you kind of squint your eyes and ignore the facilities costs, they're probably net positive, difficult to squint your eyes and ignore the facilities costs. But more importantly, 
you know, they're really good for students. Student outcomes are much better, as you know, for athletes than for non-athletes. They generate program because you've got now program in sports science, which is, you know, very closely related to the athletics. Um, you have other things that are ancillary that wouldn't maybe flourish like your band or your cheerleading squad, you know? So in terms of the impact on recruitment, it's not just the athlete, it's the other um, students. So when you added all this stuff up and you looked at it hard, you know, you might have conversations about, do we have the right complement? Are these the right sports, et cetera? But that was sort of de minimis compared to the bigger issue was like, yeah, you got to figure out a way to make this happen because this is fundamental to the to the success and future of these institutions. And, um, you know, so it, was, it, it went on for a while, but it was a great conversation. There was a lot of good analytical work done as a result of it. And uh, I'm sure we're not, you know, completely finished, um, but it's neat to see, you know, I was doing a report to the legislature not too long ago. And, you know, uh, both good and bad of, you know, things that are challenging still and things that are successful in our integrated universities. But the fact that athletic, a full complement of teams are fielded at all of our campuses, you know, the, the ones that are strong, Lock Haven and wrestling, still strong in wrestling, you know, um, and, and, uh, but the other th cool thing, and you'd never ever have thought of it, although you might have hoped for it, is that the intramural sports teams, the students are now getting themselves together and playing against each other from campus to campus, which is kind of not across comprehensively. Some new rivals. Yeah. Super cool. Yeah. And it, you know, and, and it, yeah, it, it's, it's neat. Yeah. So, so one of the things you touched on in your answer, in addition to all those ways in which it was important to the campuses was the impact on the local community of having those teams to support and that they adopt. I'm curious as you think, cause you know, in the sector I'm in, in the smaller private uh, higher ed sector, we're happen to be in the heart of Pittsburgh, but a lot of small rural campuses that have a lot of characteristics similar to the ones that you've integrated. I'm curious how you and in your talks with the legislators framed, this isn't just about the students and faculty, but it's about the anchor institutions in each of these communities and the important, the, the wider importance that they play. So we did an economic impact study commission one in 2015, I think it was published in 2016, and, you know, so the integration planning process 2021 created an opportunity to revisit that study. Um, and uh, and so to revisit it for the system as a whole, but also to then focus it specifically on the Commonwealth, the, the campuses of Commonwealth and, and um, uh, Penn West. And, and so we learned a number of things. One of them is that the biggest, you know, the biggest economic impact of a university has on its community, one of the biggest, obviously it creates jobs, but more importantly, it creates spending through its students. That's the biggest driver. So the worst thing that you could have see happen was enrollment decline, you know, and um, of course we're getting, you know, there's a lot of integration because we're a public university and because it was done in the public eye, there was a lot of narratives out there about it, which were, let's say inaccurate. Uh, but that wasn't their purpose was not to be accurate. Um, but one of them was, you know, that this was all being driven by interest in layoffs and layoffs was going to kill communities. And actually what you discovered in the impact study was that employment is important, but it, it really is student enrollment that drives the economic impact. And that the real threat of in further enrollment decline was the biggest threat to um, 
economic impact. So, uh, so I think thing one, I mean, so we did some good analytics to, to demonstrate, you know, the extent to which that's true or not. Um, uh, I, I, I think the other thing was, uh, I guess that I learned is that communities, there are communities in our midst who have been very afraid of their universities decline for years, Mansfield, Clarion, Edinburgh, even to a certain extent. Um, California, those communities were not hostile openly to the idea and love it, but they also recognized because they've been talking about this for a while, that this was a real problem and in play and that it had not been a problem that anybody had really shown much of an interest in trying to address. So in those communities, this was not, you know, there were good, tough conversations with community leaders, elected officials, et cetera, but it was not challenging to, you know, just openly say, folks, what else you got, right? Where where, where else are you going to go? Because what, it's not about the question yet, a lot of issues. I would, I get the uncertainty about integration. But on balance, I'm going to trade, I'm going to take that uncertainty over the certainty of non-integration because I know what that looks like. And so do you. And they did. Now, there there was one case where the community had frankly been misled. Uh, I I don't think it was actively misled, to be perfectly honest. I think there was a great distance between the university and the community. So there was not a lot of knowledge. Um... I think the university to a certain extent had been misled uh, about its real condition. Um, you know, so there integration comes along and it's a lightning rod because it's like whiplash. Wait a minute. One day the sky is blue and the next second it's not. What, what are you telling me? And I'm like, Hey, I'm sorry, but here are the numbers, but they'd never seen the numbers. So there was, um, you know, a lot of disbelief in it, you know, and again, this is, like I said, this is a political process. So what happens is, you know, there are going to be people who are unhappy with the potential outcome and they're going to find each other in a social media world and they're going to club together and they're going to do their damnedest to stop things from happening. And, you know, all of that is predictable. It's all good. It's part of the American way. So it's, it's, it's a good thing. Um, but, but it was only in that very one local instance that the community was uh, mobilized politically or found itself being or mobilized itself politically in order to 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 try to stop the machine, uh, the process. Um, uh, and, and, and in my view, it had to do with the unrealistic, put it that way, understanding of, of, of where their university actually was and what the condition was. Mm-hmm. Great. You mentioned it's still very early days to assess the effectiveness of the integrations from the the results you were hoping. But can you give sort of an an early report card in terms of what's meeting or exceeding your expectations other than the growth of intramural sports? What's most surprised you in there? So, you know, it's a mixed mixed story. Um, uh, Again, we're eight months in, I guess the... um, 
So on the upside, I, you know, we've met all of our basic integration goals, technology integration, you know, departmental integration process, you know, academic program blending has all happened. Uh, yay. Um, there's more to do, but I think the heaviest part of the lift is passed now for most of our, for, 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 their, yeah, for, for both those universities. Um, uh, the you're seeing some neat things in the student experience we talked about you know athletics going on you're seeing some interesting you know multi-campus stuff so that's cool um the uh uh there are uh the the, the there are it, it's super hard there and it's frustrating you know and imagine you come to work one day and you don't think you know how to do everything you come to work the next day you don't know how to do anything and so there's a lot of frustration and even some some anger uh which is real and it's not helped by the fact that I don't know how to do my HR system anymore and I can't register for my courses because everything's changed from the way I used to be. Um, actually, uh, yesterday was they turned on the student information system full bore for the first time at Commonwealth and, you know, went well for 2,400 people and, you know, 40, not so well, but, you know, 40 are screaming their heads off. Not, un not unreasonable. Um, you know, that stuff is frustrating. So, uh, and, 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 uh, you know, I, I, I counter that with the fact that they're just the people, the faculty staff is just tremendous grit and determination, just getting, getting the work done, tired, exhausted too. I mean, tired, but, um, uh, you know, I, there, the, both, both schools had disappointing enrollments, 21, that was before integration. It was COVID driven and Penn West in particular in 2022, Commonwealth was down a little bit, but not way out of system averages. Commonwealth, of course, has resiliency financially. Uh, Penn West does not. So Penn West has some challenges that remain uh, to be overcome. Uh, some of those frustrations also showed up in student retention. Not so much at Commonwealth, but at, uh, at Penn West. Not in excessive numbers, uh, you know, but out of line with the past. The interesting thing, two data points which I cling to, and I look at everything. One of them is, how about the first time students, the people who enrolled in fall, who have no knowledge of what happened before? How are they doing? So what you discover is that Commonwealth and Penn West both have historic, on each of the campuses, historic high rates of return fall to spring. So that's good. Uh, the other thing I looked at is, you know, there's a lot of noise and concern about, you know, the, the presence of online, the reliance of online instruction. So actually, look, what's the percentage of student credit hours that are being taught online there versus other campuses? The numbers are a little higher, but not much. You know, so if it's 18% student credit hours taught online at across the system, it's like 22% at Commonwealth. It was much higher at Penn West, so I dug into that. So what's going on? Turned out that was an anomaly because it was difficult to get faculty back into the classroom after COVID. So what's happening next year? It'll be 20%. Okay, good. So, you know, I, I, I think that we're on track to achieve the goals of, you know, they, they and that, you know, we, we, we said we were going to stop the, we we're going to maintain program breadth. We've done that. So, you know, I think on balance, I, I think Commonwealth certainly has the financial resiliency to deal with a couple of, you know, disappointing enrollment years. Actually, their numbers for next year look good. So let's hope they, they um, 
bottom out, turn the corner, and then begin to sort of move forward. So I'm, I'm pretty optimistic about <laughs> Commonwealth Penn West. You know, I think we're going to have to help them through some difficult, uh, uh, some, some difficult, um, you know, times and to build the new capabilities that they need to manage through them. But, I'm, you know, it's so interesting. Again, it's the great part about being a system. So as they began to struggle, we began to supply support. Well, what does that support look like? We just get the best and the brightest from elsewhere in the system. You need help with enrollment management? Bang! All of a sudden, the best person in the system in enrollment management is now at Penn West. You know, maybe not full time, but they're helping. Sleeves rolled up. Student affairs. You need help making a sticky campus? Have we got the guy for you? Bang! He's at Penn West. So, you know, now we've got all these people crawling all over Penn West, you know, because they're there to help. And that is, you know, to me, that's a great testimony to the the, the power of being a system. And, and frankly, the the you know, the, 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 the vision of our presidents, you know, their, their, their recognition that, you know, we, we, we will, we survive better together. And uh, so that's kind of neat. So that's a long winded way of saying, no, I'm still but, but very helpful. So on top of the challenge of, of leading all of this, uh, you've ch- decided to write a book about it. Can, can you tell us uh, when's the publication date? Do you have a working title for it? I don't. I, I, um, so I, I have written several chapters. Um, uh, I stopped, uh, you know, uh, like my, my, just like yours, as I'm sure there's a biorhythm to my life, which gives me a, not a month up, but I have a, my August is typically quiet after, after the July board meeting, things quiet down a little. Um, and so I, I did some writing last summer. I think it was last summer. Um, and uh, and I'm I'm looking forward to this summer to doing a little more. Um, but uh, yeah, and then actually it turned out you know I was I I, I did um, I'm glad that I got delayed because I would not have now I'm able to include I've learned a lot through the first you know year of implementation not all, always very flattering things but but things that I think are important to include so um, so I'm kind of glad I'm I'm waiting uh, but uh, so no. Um, I may well, have to you would find have to write a sequel if 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 you yeah, had know, finished right? it before. It, it, it may be that that year off that I hoped I had gotten after Gates. Maybe I it might require that year off to happen, but um, I don't think it's going to get old too. I, I don't think the subject will get too too old too quick. So I hope it won't anyway. And and you mentioned that you know as you look back, there are things you would have done differently. As you're synthesizing lessons from this for others who may be thinking about system restructuring or, or integrations, what, what, what have been some of your key takeaways? So, you know, a couple of what one we've talked about is that, you know, the, the, the change agency is more like a campaign that, that and, and it needs to be thunk about kind of ruthlessly. You do a faction analysis you know, that can, and then you build your campaign and, and, and you be practical about what you need that campaign to accomplish and you get there. And if you get more good, but you only need to get there. So I think that's certainly one lesson. I think the other really had to do with um, capability analysis and sort of I spent and we did a lot of that. At, I did a lot of that at the sort of system level. What does the system need to sort of and it wasn't about integration. It's this sort of system redesign generally. You know, did we we didn't have the right. Did we have the right accountabilities? Did we have the right budgeting? Did we have the performance management? So shared governance structure. So we did a lot to put basic tools, and I, I call them, I think of them as a suite of enterprise management tools in place that would enable us to drive the system redesign. Good. What I, uh, in that basket, I missed university level cap- capacity planning, you know, so, uh, and 
it kind of goes back to this idea, you know, university life is changing dramatically. Our students are changing. The world is changing. You can't just necessarily expect your great people and they're great people. Just, hey, go do better, right? That's not enough. You've got to provide the scaffolding and supports that folks need. So, um, so I think that capability planning at this at the university level and the tools that enable leadership to ensure that they're operating uh, at a at a level sufficient to the need, I think that's critical. And um, I, that's more of a system thing than an integration thing. But that's you know one, that that's that's a lesson learned. Um, you know, I think a lot about about. Uh, transparency and accountability, you know, is 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 absolutely critical to building trust. Trust is different than uh, um, I trust you is different than I like you. Um, often, I trust you is associated with I really don't like you or the thing you represent. But it is critical to trust, and uh, I mean, and trust is critical to change. So, um, so we've learned a lot about you know data and trans about transparency and accountability. And I guess the last point of oh, two points, data, uh, you know, outcomes oriented decision-making, you know, our world is incredibly political. And um, by making analytically driven, data-driven decisions and informing discussions and requiring discussions be informed by data, you're never going to eliminate the political, but you, it makes it harder I believe is no longer an acceptable way to get something done. And you create a culture where you want to have this conversation, you want to engage really directly in it. Great, come with data. Um, and it better be awfully good data. And you better be super smart in the analysis because um, you know we're open to data, but not so much to I believe, because I don't really care what you believe. And, and our students- People aren't allowed yeah. to have their own facts. Right. You know, it's just, you're, and unfortunately, our world is a bit like that. And I guess the last point is uh, I've, I've learned a lot about leadership resilience. Uh, <laughs> how do you become resilient without becoming cynical is a question I wish I could answer, but can't. Well, well to end on a slightly different note, Dan, going back to your days on the, on the digital side of things, I'd love to get your take on the implications of chat GPT and AI for the higher ed enterprise. So I actually am taking a lead from uh, uh, Dr. Ken Mash. He's a, a political scientist at um, East Strasburg University. He's also the uh, head of our faculty union, uh, ABSCEF. Actually, he was here when I got here as union head, and he's back again. He was great. He he's we, it's one of our topics of conversation. You know, it's fascinating. You know, there's so many opportunities in chat GPT. You know, there's a lot to be scared of, too. But, uh, you know, anyway, uh, he's the kind of guy who dwells on the opportunity. And I, I'm, I'm following that lead. I mean, if you think about it from, uh, you know, the fear about plagiarism or, you know, students writing, getting their writing done by chat GPT, you know, you can think of all sorts of really interesting assignments, you know, go have chat GPT, write something and then and it writes something for a particular audience and then you take it and revise it for another audience. I mean, and again, educational opportunity. There are some phenomenal opportunities with respect to data analytics. You know, you throw chat GPT at your at your P&L. Uh, here's here's your P&L for your online um, uh, undergraduate program you want to run. And uh, you know, see what it does. I mean, I, I, or at a benchmarking study and see what it could. I, I just, I, I think there's some phenomenally interesting opportunities out there. And and there's obviously things to be concerned about too. But I don't know. We over-index on the stuff. 
uh, we over-index on concern. I, 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 let me share one one thought with you. It's not quite ChatGPT, but we're we're thinking of um, course sharing, right? It's really important for our system, uh, and of course, it's an area where our system, by being a system, can be super strong. Not everybody needs to have a world-class philosophy department to act to provide access to its students to world-class philosophy if we club together, right? So, if you think about it, that requires course sharing and program sharing, but course sharing. So you think about course sharing and so the way we typically go at it is, well, we'll articulate it and a lot of people will review it and we'll look at the learning outcomes and we'll line it up with our catalog and we'll come up with a numbering system. And I'm like, are you kidding me? I'm dead. Course sharing is like ride sharing. It should be an Uber app. I'm a student. I request a course. It comes along and it picks me up and it drops me off and all this stuff works. So I don't want to give too much away, but it's a, it's a chat GPT kind of, so I'm, I'm, I'm challenging. I've, I've actually engaged with that. We have a, a system-wide faculty council, it's called. It's like, imagine a system-wide Senate. And they're very interested in course sharing for all sorts of good reasons. So I said, let's do a grand challenge. So get a bunch of folks together in different subject areas. I'll see if I can find them some support with people who do, you know, design-centered stuff, you know, student-centered or people-centered app design and who know about, you know, this kind of technology. And I'll just there is support. I say, come up with something which is like student-centered, friction-free, you know, works at speed, doesn't have mind-numbing review. And and let's see. And you know, pri- you know, whatever. We'll figure something out. But I'm I'm getting really excited about that because uh, we probably won't come up with anything. But it, it, it's a really interesting idea if you think about you know how could you recreate. What if we step outside our world just for a second? And G- ChatGPT is, it seems to me, is like one of those opportunities just to check, step outside our world for a second and ask ourselves, couldn't we, is there a way to do even better? Yeah. Well, I, I had an academic colleague in the UK who asked it to write the university strategic plan. So, you know, there's there's all sorts of go. all sorts How of opportunities. So, <laughs> Dan, Dan, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. I've really enjoyed it, and good luck with uh, both the book and with the the next phases of the transformation. Thanks, David. Appreciate your time.